wabarakatuh. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If someone can give me a, a sound check, please, very quickly, just to make sure everything's okay, and inshallah ta'ala, we will begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen, wal-a'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen, wa ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lah, ilahu al-awwalina wal-akhirin, wa ashadu anna nabiyyana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu al-mustafa al-ameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barika ala abdika wa rasoolika muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So welcome to another lesson of Quranic Progression. We are on our fourth lesson, Walillahi alhamd. And we are continuing with the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl. And inshallah ta'ala, today we will commence from, or continue from verse number 11. Last week we spoke, uh, we covered more or less from verses 5 onwards, that batch of verses that essentially are kind of grouped together, that speak about the two types of of people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in this surah. We had the first type of person in verses 5 onwards, those people who turn to Allah azza wa jal, who do good, who are people of taqwa, who are people of spending and giving for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal. And those are the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises. And we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago the story of uh, or the, the position of some of the scholars concerning those verses in terms of it referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir. And also the position of some of the other scholars of tafsir who said that actually it's referring to the companion from amongst the Ansar, Abu Dahdah radiallahu anhu. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he is speaking about those people, those people of taqwa, those people of spending and giving for the sake of Allah azza wa jal, he describes them as being people who attest to al-husna. They confirm or they attest to al-husna. And we mentioned that the scholars differed slightly in terms of what that husna refers to. And we mentioned last week the different positions that some of them said that, for example, it refers to the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if a person spends, for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jalla, Allah will always give them more in return. That was the position that was chosen by the Imam of the Mufassirin, Al-Tabari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Abu Ja'far, Muhammad ibn Jarir, Al-Tabari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And then we mentioned other positions as well, such as the position that actually it's referring to Jannah, uh, because of, and that was the position that, that seemed to be the position being chosen by the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And that's based upon the verse in Surah Yunus in which Allah says, And the tafsir of a great number of the companions for Al-Husna in that verse is that it's referring to Jannah. But either way, all of it essentially comes down and amounts to the same thing, that these are people who attest to the truthfulness, whether that's the promise of Allah or the reward of Allah or Jannah, or whatever it may be. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says we will make their path easy for them. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the other side, the opposite side, and those are the people who are stingy, and those are the people who think that they are self-sufficient, don't think they need anyone. And we mentioned last week that some of the scholars of Tafsir said, and those are the people like Umay ibn Khalaf. So just as we have Abu Bakr and Abu Dahda and others from amongst the companions who fit in the description of the first group, then for the second group we have others like Umay ibn Khalaf and in the early part of Islam, Abu Sufyan and Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab and others. Those people, they are those who rejected and denied the husna. And so Allah says that He will make smooth for them their path of hardship. And we mention why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the word smooth for both the paths of ease and the paths of hardship. And that is a form and a way in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even for the people of evil, another way in which Allah increases their torment and increases their sense of disgrace and humiliation. So inshallah ta'ala today we will continue from verse number 11. So Allah Azza wa Jalla in verse number 11 he says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ وَمَا يُغْنِي عَنْهُ مَالُهُ إِذَا تَرَدَّ And his wealth will not help him as he falls. And I want to look at the translation here because the ma at the beginning, and we'll, we'll speak about this in a short while, but the ma at the beginning of this verse, the scholars differed as to what it's referring to. Is it ma al-istifhamiyya? Is there a question? The ma, because the word ma can be used in the question form. So, for example, when you say to someone, masbuk, right, what is your name? The ma here is what? And the ma can also be used in the Arabic language or from the usages of the ma in the Arabic language is that it can be nafia, to negate something. Ma fa'altu, I didn't do that, right? So, the ma here is to negate. So, what is this one? So, uh, that's why I think it's interesting to see which position the translators have chosen 
in terms of its uh, in terms of it being is, is it a matter of, of istifham is it a question or is it negation uh, Muhsin Khan he went down the path that it's a questioning ma the ma is for a question and he says and what will his wealth avail him when he goes down into destruction Mufti Taqi chose the other one that it's the negation and his wealth will not help him when he will fall down into hell and Abdul Halim does something similar his wealth will not help him as he falls and Sahih International also goes uh, and chooses the first one which is that it's a question and what will his wealth avail him when he falls right and clearly both are can be correct both are uh, correct but each one has a slightly different meaning is it for a question or is it for negation and clearly it is negating either way right it's a negation either way that, that the wealth will not help them but when you ask the question it makes you prompts you to think right that i've spent my whole life gathering this wealth and amassing this fortune and spending my days and my nights and my evenings and my weekends to work and gather more wealth and by doing so i neglected allah and it's always important to put that caveat in because someone who works hard and gathers money and gains wealth, but at the same time they fulfill the rights of Allah and the obligations upon them and the rights of their family and so on, those people are not included in these types of verses. But it's speaking about those people who neglect Allah, who don't believe in Allah, or who don't spend any of their time worshipping Allah Azza and they have no regard for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or their religious obligations or their family obligations, and they spend their time amassing that wealth. What benefit will it give to them? So that is the meaning of the question and both of them are similar in their meanings but anyway we'll speak about this in a short while what good is their wealth to them either taradda and i'm going to start with some of the linguistic points before we uh, before we uh, go into the meaning of the verse uh, and sheikh muhammad al-amin al-shanqiti so just to go on to that ma issue again uh, sheikh muhammad al-amin al-shanqiti he mentions both of them he says the ma here it is possible the ma as, as in wa ma yughni the mahiya can be for nafiya, which means negation. Meaning that their wealth will never benefit them. It doesn't bring them any benefit. So if you look, for example, throughout the Quran, whether it's the story of Pharaoh, the story of Qarun, the story of or the lives of the likes of Umayyah ibn Khalaf and Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab, the wealth that they had doesn't benefit them anything in the next world. Because when Allah says these people are stingy and miserly, and they're people who think they're self-sufficient, that their wealth is enough to save them and it's enough to give them power and prestige. They have amassed that wealth because they think, they think that it will lead them to some type of salvation or that it will bring them some type of happiness and contentment. And that's always the case for those people who keep and amass that wealth, who take that wealth and don't like to spend, don't like to share, don't like to give it to anyone. Those people who keep that wealth, they see that wealth is a measure of success. So here Allah Azza wa says to them that it won't. He's negating that reality from them. He's negating all that notion from them. لا يغني عنه It doesn't benefit them in the slightest. And Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin ta'ala says, and it's possible that the ma can be istifhamiya, can be for a question. Meaning that when this person is thrown into the fire and they're falling into the destruction of the fire, then what good will their wealth do to them? What good will their wealth be for them? How will it help them? How will it save them from that punishment of the fire? So that's the position of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin and he said that both of those are correct. It's possible to have both and as you can see uh, because both of them are mentioned in the tafsir of the early scholars and that is why we say that both of them can be correct and Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says إِذَا What good will this person's wealth do to them? إِذَا What does the word taradda mean? At-taraddi there are two positions that you will find amongst the scholars of tafsir and amongst the linguists and the, and the scholars of the Arabic language. The first of them is At-taraddi means to fall from a height down, right? So from a high place to a low place that is called At-taraddi. As Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala said, he said, min ila sufl. It is to fall from a high place to a lower place. And that is also the position that is mentioned in a number of the, uh, by a number of the scholars of, of tafsir. Uh, for example, the statement of Qatada, Rahimullah Ta'ala, Qatada, the famous scholar of the Tabi'een, he said, إِذَا تَرَدَّ فِي النَّارِ When this person is falling into the fire. And we know that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, in a number of hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's mentioned that the people of the fire will be thrown into the fire. And when you throw into something, it's going to go down, right? You throw something into 
a vessel, a pot, a, 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 a valley or something, meaning that it's going from the top to the bottom. And so it is a pit, right, that it's going to go into. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it's mentioned in a number of hadith, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that, that when that stone, when the Prophet was sitting with a number of companions and they heard uh, something in the sky, a, a, a sound, and the Prophet sallallahu asked the companions, do you know what that was? They said, no, Messenger of Allah. He said, that was a stone that was thrown into the depths of the fire 70 years ago, and it is still falling, and that is what you, what you heard. So it's falling, and it has therefore a deep depth. That's what's being referred to in the Qur'an. And even when Allah Azza wa Jalla will speak about this slightly later, but even when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is describing the levels of, of the fire, they descend right in, in intensity. The lower you go, the harsher that fire is. And that's why when Allah Azza wa Jalla describes the munafiqeen, He says, They are in the lowest, lowest depths of the fire. So just as Jannah has darajat, or levels that ascend, then likewise the fire has depths, meaning levels that descend. So you ascend in Jannah, you go higher, whereas in the fire you go lower, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But anyway, that is the first position that you will find. And that is the position that was chosen by uh, by uh, Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he mentioned both of those positions, and we will speak about the second one shortly, this is the position that he also chose as well, that the meaning of the word taradda comes from uh, comes from a taraddi and that is to fall into something and you will find that that's also the position that you will find amongst the early scholars of the Arabic language who wrote, spoke about Gharib al-Quran and we mentioned this before we slightly touched upon this I think last year maybe even the year before that one of the sciences of the Quran is to look at the, the, the words of the Quran that may be slightly unfamiliar and that is called Gharib and you have the same in Hadith Gharib al-Hadith Gharib al-Quran the word Gharib means it's strange or it's unfamiliar those words like this word taradda, you will find those scholars wrote about them. Now, from the early scholars who wrote about this was the scholar Ibn Qutayba. Rahimahullah ta'ala, he has a book called Gharib al-Quran. And Ibn Qutayba is from the students of the likes of Ishaq ibn Rahawi and others. He died towards the end of the, 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 the third century of Islam. And then after him, Az-Zajaj and others. So they also mention this as being one of the meanings of the word taraddi. And Imam al-Tabri, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he chose this, he said that this is the stronger opinion that the word taraddi means that you fall from a height to uh, something which is lower. And he said, and that is because it is the way that the Arabs speak. They use the word taradda to refer to something which is falling. The other position among some of the scholars that you will find is that it means death or destruction. Meaning, and what good will their wealth do to them when they are destroyed? Now clearly, the meaning is very similar because someone who is thrown into the fire, may Allah Azza save us from that, that is a type of destruction. But rather said, no, it actually refers to death or destruction itself. And that was a position that was famously reported as being the position of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, this is what he chooses also. He says, That this word, taradda, comes from the asal, or from the origin, the word of radi. Radiya or the verb radiya, and that means to die or to be destroyed. And and to be fair, Ibn Qutayba and others from amongst the scholars of the Arabic language, and Imam al-Tabri himself also mentions both of those positions because Mujahid, rahimahullah, as we know, is from the greatest scholars of tafsir that ever lived, from the formal students of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma. And so you have both of those positions. You have those scholars who said that it's referring to death and destruction and others who said that actually is referring to the physical act of falling into the depths of the fire. And as you can clearly see, there is a correlation and there is a connection between the two. Um, the the uh, Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the meaning of this verse is that this person who was stingy with his wealth and thought that he didn't need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this life or the next life, what will be his situation on the day of judgment, and what good will his, will, his, will his wealth do for him when he is being thrown into the fire and he is falling into the depths of the fire? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is essentially speaking about those people that Allah azawajal, that we, we, we kind of concluded upon last week, those people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that their path will be smooth, smooth towards hardship, meaning that they've chosen the path to turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those people that have turned away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what good will their wealth do? What good will all of their things do in this life that they accumulated 
thinking that it will bring them some type of salvation, money will provide them, nothing of the sort on the day of judgment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in verse number 2, He says, uh, sorry, in verse number 12 rather, إِنَّ Our part is to provide guidance. And that is the, the translation of Abdul Halim. Uh, Muhsin uh, Khan says, truly on us is to give guidance. And Mufti Taqi says, of course it is undertaken by us to guide and Sahih International indeed incumbent upon us is guidance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he says, إِنَّ You will find amongst the scholars of, of tafsir different interpretations as to what this particularly means or what this exactly means. And from those people that mention this in some detail is uh, Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala and before him Al-Imam ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala also. So one of the positions that they say that or some of the, the scholars took concerning this is that it's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying in this verse Inna that indeed it is incumbent upon us to give them guidance or as uh, our part is to provide guidance that it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who makes clear the path of guidance as opposed to the path of misguidance right? so he makes clear what is halal, what is haram what is obedience, what is disobedience what is beloved to him subhanahu wa ta'ala as opposed to what is disliked or hated by him jalla fi ula and so Allah Azza makes it clear for people to understand the path of good as opposed to the path of evil, the path of guidance, as opposed to the path of misguidance. And that is similar, very similar, uh, and, and from the scholars who took that position, is Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala. He said in the tafsir of this verse, he said, It is upon Allah to make it clear, to make clear what is halal, what is haram, what is obedience and what is disobedience. And that is therefore the position that was chosen by a number of the scholars as well. And it seems and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best that Imam Al-Tabdi leaned towards that as well. The second uh, position that you will find is, and each one of these, by the way, has has a, a correct meaning. Right? Each one of them is correct. No doubt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who makes clear what is halal from what is haram. He is the musharri'. He is the one who lays down the laws of the sharia and the laws of Islam. Another possible meaning that you will find among some of the scholars is that it's referring to the fact that Allah Azza wa Jal it is incumbent upon him to guide the creation incumbent upon him to guide the creation meaning to make clear the path of guidance right and Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti ta'ala he says and it's important that we don't get confused between this verse according to that tafsir that it is incumbent upon Allah to give guidance because that's one of the meanings that can be taken from that and be confused with other verses of the Qur'an in which Allah Azza wa Jal, for example, says Wallahu la yahdi al-qawm al-fasiqeen Wallahu la yahdi al-qawm al-zalimeen Wallahu la yahdi al-qawm al-kafeen Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't guide the disbelievers and He doesn't guide the sinners and the evil doers and He doesn't guide the oppressors and so on and it's important to understand how to reconcile and how to understand both in their context so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it is upon him to give guidance, even upon this tafsir, that it is an incumbent that Allah guides everyone, right? what that means is to make clear to, the, to them the path of guidance. Right? That's what it means. So that people know that there is a path that leads them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as for when Allah azawajal negates guidance from certain groups of people like the disbelievers and, and the oppressors and the evildoers and the sinners and so on, that is because they chose not to take the path of guidance. So there are two types of hidayah, right? And this is an important issue because it's an issue of aqidah, it's an issue that orientalists and atheists and others have with our religion, a problem that they have. And that is that we believe, and it is from the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, that we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has two types of guidance. One is the guidance of making clear, of, of, of giving information, of, of, and it is very similar to the role of the Prophet ﷺ in the sense that the, that the Prophet ﷺ, when Allah says, la man ahbab, You don't guide whomsoever you will. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says in other verses that He is the one who guides, that the Prophet ﷺ is the one who is who's a guide. How is He a guide? But then He doesn't guide, meaning that He's the one who makes clear the path to Allah, the path of guidance. He conveys the message. As for the second type of guidance, and that is the guidance of acceptance. 
So the first one is open to everyone. The prophets of Allah can do it. The messengers of Allah do it. The Muslims do it. The scholars do it. The average lay person from the Muslims can do it. They can make clear the path of guidance. They can meet someone and tell them about Allah. Tell them about Tawheed. Tell them about La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. That's something which everyone can do. As for the second type of guidance though, that is specific to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what it's called as Hidayatul Qabul. The guidance of acceptance, that they accept the message, that they accept and believe in Allah Azza wa Jal, accept Tawheed, the message of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. That is something which is specific to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And so Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who guides, and that is the meaning of the verse, Innaka la man ahbabd. Right? And in some of the hadith, uh, it is mentioned that that verse was revealed concerning the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Abu Talib. Because Abu Talib died upon other than Islam. He didn't die upon Islam. He died as a non-Muslim. And that's something which obviously grieved the Prophet ﷺ because he said to his uncle before his death that I will continue to seek Allah's forgiveness for you so long as Allah doesn't forbid me to do so. And then Allah did forbid him to do so. And from the verses that were revealed in that regard is You do not guide whomsoever you love or you wish but rather it is Allah who gives guidance to whomsoever he wills. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so those meanings are both correct. It is correct that Allah Azza makes the halal clear from the haram. That's a correct meaning. And no doubt that is a correct meaning. And it is a meaning that some of the scholars chose as being the meaning from these, this verse, as we mentioned as being the statement of Qatada and the position that seems to be the position of Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. And then it is also very true that Allah Azza it is upon him to make clear the path of guidance that Allah Azza gives guidance, meaning the general type of guidance to everyone. And as for the ones who accept the guidance or don't accept the guidance, then that's a different type of issue and a different type of guidance. And both of those meanings are correct. Ibn al-Qayyim, however, he says, even though both of those meanings are correct, and it is true, they are true, but it is not what is being referred to here in this verse. It is the third position that is being referred to here, and that is the position of... of uh, of Mujahid ta'ala, his tafsir of this verse and it's the one that was chosen by Ibn Atiyah ta'ala, as well and Ibn Qayyim ta'ala, as well and they say essentially that what it means is that whoever takes the path of guidance so it is incumbent upon us to provide guidance meaning Inna meaning that whoever takes the path of guidance will surely find Allah if you tread the path of guidance you will always end to Allah you, the ending of that will always bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Similar to the verse in which Allah Azza wa Jal says, Those who seek guidance, Allah will give them guidance and He will increase them in piety, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, Allah Azza wa Jal is saying that if you take the path of guidance, it will always bring you to Allah Azza wa Jal. Mujahid said, Rahimullah ta'ala, Man salak al-huda fa'ala Allahi sabiru. Whosoever treads the path of guidance, then that, that is the same path that will lead them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala says that this is the strongest of the three. This is, even though the others are correct in their meaning, this is the one that Allah Azza wa is intending first and foremost and primarily in the meaning of this verse. And it is a very beautiful meaning if you think about this because it says, or it means the meaning of, of this particular position is that if you are sincere and you seek guidance from Allah Azza wa and you try your best, level best, to attain that guidance and Allah Azza knows that you are sincere, then that will always take you, bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if it is in a very long-winded, difficult path, even if it is something which takes months or years for you to attain, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will eventually give you that guidance. And Allah Azza has, as we know, his wisdom subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of the different paths and journeys that people take. And so whether you want to see, for example, the story of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu an who's going from land to land, trying to get closer to Medina because he's been told that that's where the new prophet's going to emerge. And so he's someone who's far away and he's going as a slave and a worker and, and moving from land to land. Eventually he comes to Medina. Allah Azza knew his sincerity, radiallahu an, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided him to that path. And others as well, that Allah Azza guides them to that path one way or another. And that's for a non-Muslim who becomes a Muslim and accepts Islam. But even as a Muslim, if you're someone who's going through a difficult time, you're someone who's going through hardship, maybe you're someone who wants to seek knowledge, right? And you find it difficult, you find that there's not many avenues open to you, but you are sincere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always give to you a path. Allah will always find for you a way. 
and from the most amazing stories that has always amazed me is is is, is from amongst the stories that you find amongst the Salaf, those kind of stories where you know you find a scholar who wasn't really who didn't really have open for him the different paths of knowledge and didn't, didn't really know where to go and what to or maybe they were young in age and they didn't really know where to go and which path to take and then scholars saw them and they recognized their potential and they took them under their wing and they helped them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saw and Allah azza wa jal gave that person that blessing that person was sincere maybe even as a child or maybe their parents are sincere and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps them along that path of knowledge or helps them along that path of guidance of bringing them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is a very beautiful meaning because it means therefore that if you are sincere always in terms of seeking your knowledge wanting to come closer to Allah seeking authentic correct knowledge meaning knowledge that will bring you closer to Allah not knowledge which is just for information or knowledge which will you know which would which just gives you pieces of paper or qualifications but true knowledge because the essence of knowledge as we know is worship and the essence of worship is always to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if knowledge doesn't lead you to worship, doesn't lead you to bring you closer to Allah azza wa jal, then that knowledge isn't the knowledge that is beneficial. It's not the knowledge that the Quran and the Sunnah are praising and encouraging us to take. And this is a problem because we live in a time where knowledge is often equated with qualifications. It's often equated with, 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 uh, with documentation. It's often equated with promotions at work and so on. And know that there's a place for them in terms of you know uh, other types of knowledge and even Islamic knowledge but the essence of Islamic knowledge first and foremost has to be the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so when you find someone who for example seeking knowledge but they stop seeking that knowledge after a certain point or period of time or maybe they think for example I've graduated I have my degree now maybe I went to an Islamic university maybe I went to a local institute maybe I went to read to my teacher at my local masjid and I finished this book or I finished this degree or I finished this program or whatever it may be and then they stop then you know that that person didn't really seek knowledge because it's ibadah. They sought knowledge because they wanted to tick a box or whatever it may be. A true student of knowledge knows that it is ibadah. And ibadah never finishes. An act of worship never finishes. A person who prays continues to pray. A person who fasts continues to fast. A person who gives sadaqah continues to give sadaqah and so on and so forth. So likewise, the person who seeks knowledge knowing that it is ibadah also wants to go and seek that knowledge because and continue to seek that knowledge because it is ibadah. And that's why you find amongst the scholars of the past that they continued to learn and seek knowledge even once they became scholars in their own right and teachers and people who others traveled the world over to come and see and meet and learn and study from never made them stop seeking knowledge because for them it is still an act of ibadah they're still seeking that knowledge and learning and benefiting right and that's why it said that the scholars would always go back to their own teachers right the scholars always continue to go back to their own teachers and it is one of the most beautiful sights and most humbling things to see your teacher go back to their teacher. A teacher, and sometimes maybe you both have the same teacher, maybe your teacher's older than you and he studied with his teacher when he was far younger and you studied with his teacher also at a later age as well. But it is a beautiful, humbling thing which I saw, alhamdulillah, many times and I continue to see that a person who themselves in their own right is a scholar, who people go to and learn with and they teach and you will find that they still go back to their own teachers whether it's to study with them, whether it's to seek advice from them, whether it's just to go and to keep that connection of, of you know, of visiting and giving them their rights of, of being their teachers and so on. That is something which shows you that this person values what they have and it is for them an act of worship. Because like with every act of worship, there is a manner in which it is performed. Not everyone who prays gets the full reward. Why? Because there's a certain etiquette to prayer and a certain manner in which you pray and certain amount of khushu' that is needed and so on. And that's why you have people that pray, but their prayers differ in terms of their reward and benefit. People who fast. Not every person who fasts gets the full reward because there are certain things that you're meant to do. There's a certain way in which you fast and there are certain acts of the heart and so on that have to be present or, 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 or emotions of the heart that need to be present and so on and so forth. Ibadah in terms of knowledge is exactly the same. Not two people who study with the same scholar in the same place reading the same book are the same. Because the way one acts and their etiquettes, and the way that they behave, and the way that they take that knowledge, and the way that they receive that knowledge, and what they do with that knowledge, and, and what they uh, build upon that knowledge, is very different to the other person who comes, and he sits, and he reads, and then when he goes home, he takes his book, and he puts it on a high shelf, and he never looks at it again. And that's a problem. So both of them are upon good, inshallah, both of them have a reward. But one has a far greater reward, and one is, in terms of their ibadah, much greater and much better than the one who isn't. So... 
when a person is sincere in finding that path that brings them back to Allah Azza wa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna arina lalhuda. It is our duty to guide that person who is sincerely seeking that guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that it is similar, this verse, Inna arina lalhuda, is similar to two other verses in the Quran that give exactly or more or less the same meaning. The first is in Surah Al-Nahl, in which Allah Azza wa says, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ قَصْدُ السَّبِيلِ and those people who tread the path, they will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon that path. And the other verse is the one in Surah Al-Hijr, in which Allah Azza wa says, هَذَا صِرَاطٌ عَلَيَّ مُسْتَقِيمٌ This is the true path, that will, or the straight path that will lead you towards me. right? And so this is the position that was chosen by Ibn Atiyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, and before them, it is the position of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. But as we said, therefore, in... Uh, in conclusion, that there are three possible positions and each one of them is correct. Either it is to define what is halal from what is haram, that is the meaning of Allah Azza wa saying it is guidance. The second one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala must give guidance, but meaning the general type of guidance, not the guidance that is the acceptance, because that is something which not everyone will receive. And we have to always make that distinction and understand in the sharia what is being referred to when we say that there is guidance, right? Uh, and what it's referring to in that particular context. And then the third position is the one that is mentioned uh, by Ibn Qayyim and others, alayhi rahmatullah, and that is that the path of guidance will always lead you back to Allah. Inna alayna lalhuda, meaning that your guidance will lead you to us, meaning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is also a very beautiful meaning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verse number 13, he says, وَإِنَّ لَنَا لَلْآخِرَةَ وَالْأُولَىٰ this world and the next belongs to us. Verse 12 and verse 13 are, are usually coupled together by many of the scholars of tafsir. Because one is telling you to take the path of guidance that will take you back to Allah Azza wa And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 13 is essentially saying, and what reason do you have for not taking that path of guidance? Because everything that you want in terms of the benefits of your life in, in this world and the benefits that you can hope for in the next world, in the akhirah, all of them are, belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so therefore, why would you go to anyone else? And this is something which we know as Muslims, and it's something which Allah Azza wa often mentioned in the Quran for the disbelievers. But it's something even though that we may know as Muslims, it's not something which we often, uh, you know, maybe uh, remember or are always conscious of and aware of. We know that Allah Azza wa controls everything in the heavens and the earth and all of the treasures of the heavens and the earth and all of our provision and everything that we could possibly hope for or want in terms of, of, of the best of this world and the next world, all of it belongs to Allah and all of it is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we will often find ourselves turning to others other than Allah Azza wa right? Turning to people around us that we think will benefit us and help us. And no doubt there is a permissible and, and, and good way in which that is done and that is allowed in our religion. But the problem is that we sometimes feel more of a need and attachment to those people as opposed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why the highest level of iman and taqwa and tawakkul is when a person has no need for anyone except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even if others come and help them, right? even if others come and they give them aid and whatever and they accept it and it's not a problem, but they don't, they don't go to those people and they don't trust in those people and they don't rely on those people. If they come and Allah brings them, alhamdulillah. But if they don't come, then they're not really fussed either way because they have turned to Allah and Allah is sufficient for them. And that's why you find in certain hadith that the Prophet وسلم, and some of the companions when they came to accept Islam and to give the bay'ah, the pledge of allegiance to the Prophet وسلم, some of them, one of the conditions was that you don't ask anyone for anything, meaning other than Allah. And that's why you find those narrations of some of them that they would say that even if they were on their camel or their horse or their riding animal and their stick fell onto the ground and there's someone standing right there, they wouldn't ask them to give them their stick. But they would get off and they would pick it up themselves because they gave that pledge of allegiance that they would never ask anyone for anything. And so even the smallest thing, right? Because that's so normal, you know. You, 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 oh, can you pass me my shoes? Can you pass me my bag? Can you pass me my coat? Pass me my keys? Pass me this? Pass. It's very normal. It's very, very commonplace to do when you're traveling with someone or you're with someone. Or even if, you, if that person is a stranger and you ask them and you're sitting together, can you pass me that food or whatever? Those companions took an oath and a pledge of allegiance 
and they took it that seriously that they wouldn't even ask someone to pass them something which would be a very ordinary and mundane thing. Meaning that you rely only upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you rely only upon Allah azza wa jal. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore says, And we will come on to this uh, shortly because Ibn Qayyim wa ta'ala is a very nice statement in this regard. Uh, Imam al-Tabari says in the tafsir of this verse, he says that to us, meaning to Allah Azza wa belongs the kingdom of the heaven, the kingdom of the dunya and the akhirah. We give it to whomsoever we will, and we prevent it from whomsoever we will. And so Allah Azza wa he says, it is as if he's saying that the one who takes the path of guidance, takes the path of obedience, turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah Azza wa will give them the best of this world, he won't honor them in this world, but more importantly, he will honor them in the akhirah. And as for the person who turns away and disobeys Allah Azza wa Jal, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will humiliate them in this world and he will disgrace them in the akhirah, in the hereafter. Clearly, the honor of Allah Azza wa Jal in this world and the disgrace of this world may not be in the way that me and you see it. And we've mentioned this before as well. Allah Azza wa Jal honors the mu'mineen in this world by those things that he considers to be precious. So a person who has iman is honored. Even if that person is having a difficult existence in terms of their financial situation, in terms of other things that may be going on around them. And it is important, it is so important to remember this because I find in our time that we often forget this central principle. You say that if you're good, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it easy for you, right? Make it very easy for you. Allah Azza will make your life easy for you. And that person's like, how is it easy? I'm a believer, I'm a Muslim. You don't know the difficulties I have and the problems that I have and the people around me that are after me. How is it easy? And that's because that person isn't looking at it in the context of the sharia, the way that Allah Azza wa is defining ease and success. They're looking at it in terms of a very uh, materialistic way. And that's why the man who once came to the famous scholar of Islam, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, rahimahullah ta'ala, a non-Muslim man who was living uh, around that area. Ibn Mubarak, as we know, is one of the great scholars of hadith of his time. From the imams of hadith, uh, and Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah ta'ala, um, in his in his famous book of biographies, Sirah Alam in Nubala. It's if you can read Arabic or you're someone who has access to that book, it's very worth reading the biography of of Ibn Mubarak Taala as mentioned by Imam Al Dhahabi Rahimahullah. Imam Al Dhahabi mentions the biographies of thousands of scholars throughout the ages up until his time, Rahimahullah Taala. But there are very, there are very few that are praised and given as much praise and in in those terms. As Ibn al-Mubarak, he really went to a different level of praise and honoring this great scholar. And that's because he was a great scholar, Ibn al-Mubarak, as well as being a, a scholar of hadith, and he was someone who was so engrossed in, in the study of Islam and in hadith, they used to say to Ibn al-Mubarak, I'm diverging slightly, but it's an amazing uh, biography to read of his, and Ibn al-Mubarak, uh, from the scholars of Khurasan, uh, if, if memory serves me correctly. Anyway, he, he, Ibn al-Mubarak used to say that he used to uh, know the narrators of hadith and their names better than he would know the names of his own neighbors and relatives. So a relative may come to him and he's like, yeah, I know he's my relative, but I don't remember, I don't really know his name or his kids' names or whatever. But if you gave him the books of hadith or you gave him, for example, the narrators who narrated this hadith, he would know the names of the narrators. And they used to say, why? And he used to say, because I spend more time and I attach more importance to those narrators than I do to those people. And it's very true that if you're someone who is engaged in something, it's your love, it's your passion, then you're obviously going to focus more of your attention towards that. Anyway, Ibn Mubarak was also a very wealthy person. Allah Azza wa blessed him and honored him with wealth. And so he was from amongst those scholars who not only was a scholar of Islam, but he was an extremely wealthy individual. And his... Uh, his stories in terms of his generosity and what he spent for people and what he gave to people and, and many other things are very well known and documented in his biography, rahimahullah ta'ala. The point is that a man once came to him, and remember he's rich and wealthy, and, they, and he said to him, how can you Muslims claim that this world is a prison for you, right? Because the, you know, the, the, the hadith of the Prophet that this world is, a, is the prison of the believer. How can you claim it's a prison for you and it's our Jannah, meaning the non-Muslims, the disbelievers, it's our paradise. When look at you with your wealth and your money and everything that you have. And look at me, I'm a poor man. He was a beggar, a poor man. And, you know, this is a beggar and he may be a poor man, but he's, he's aware, right? He has some, you know, frequent understanding of what the, what the Sharia says. 
So he says, how can you compare us to look at you and look at me? And Ibn al-Mubarak said, and this is the principle that I want us to remember, the, the whole point of this story, is he understood the context of these narrations. He said to the man, yes, it is paradise for you in comparison to what is awaiting you in the next life. And it is a prison for me in comparison to what is awaiting me in the next life. And so no matter how much a person has in terms of the dunya, it is nothing compared to what Allah Azza wa will give to them on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that's why the people of the, on the Day of Judgment, the believers, may Allah Azza wa make us from amongst those who enter into Jannah without any accounting and without any punishment. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us and our parents and our teachers from amongst those people. Those people, the people of Jannah, when they will enter, none of the beauty of the dunya, none of anything that they will have in the dunya, even if they were the richest and most successful of people, none of it will, will, will seem like it is anything that was of any value or any significance of, or any worth. And that's why in a number of hadith, right, like the hadith of Abu Hurairah and Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhumah, the hadith of Abu Hurairah of the last man to ever leave Hawfai uh, and enter into paradise. Right? And Allah Azza wa says to him, you can have everything in the dunya and it's like, meaning double what everything in the dunya is. And that is something which is beyond anyone's imagination in this world. No one has everything in the dunya. Not one person, even the richest person ever to have lived had all of the dunya, let alone double it. And Abu Sa'id al-Khudri was sitting there as Abu Hurairah was narrating this. And he said, Abu Hurairah, I heard a hadith like this from the Prophet But I heard him say, he will give this man, Allah Azza will give the man who is the last person to enter into Jannah, the likes of this world and ten times more. Not just double, ten times more. And he is the least of those people. And in some narrations concerning that man, it is a beautiful story to gather the narrations of the last man to enter into Jannah. One of those wordings says, concerning that man that he will enter into Jannah with what Allah has given to him and he will think that there is no one better than him in Jannah because he will see that all of the blessings and bounties that Allah has given no one can possibly have more than this even though he is the least of the people of Jannah in terms of reward and in terms of blessing and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying this so what you hope for what you wish it is all belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is why Imam al-Baghawi Rahimullah Ta'ala said, and so therefore the meaning of the verse is, so therefore if you seek it from other than Allah, if you seek this guidance and its rewards from other than Allah, if you seek the, the benefits of the dunya and the akhirah from other than Allah, then you have not st uh, stayed upon the straight path. Then you have lost your way and lost your path. And Imam al-Shawkani, Rahimullah Ta'ala said something similar. Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah Ta'ala said something similar as well. Ibn al-Qayyim, uh, he mentions something very beautiful in this verse and that is that he says that when Allah is mentioning this in the Quran in these two verses that we have just taken now verses 12 and verses uh, verse 12 and 13 of, of Surah Al-Layl Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and this is obviously being based upon the position of verse 12 that was chosen by Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala that if you tread the path of guidance it will lead you to Allah and indeed Allah to him belongs the dunya and the akhirah he said that a person who is seeking something if you seek something and you tread the path that will lead you to your destination then you will gain the benefits of everything meaning that if you want to take the path to Allah then you must take the path of guidance because there is no other path that will take you to Allah Azza wa Jal. So the path that will give you the blessings of the dunya and the akhirah is the path of guidance. And by taking the path of guidance, you will enter or you will receive your rewards and you will arrive at your destination. So he says that the two are linked. Verse number 12 is speaking about the path and the way. Verse number 13 is speaking about the destination and the arrival. And he says you need to have both of them. You can't just, for example, hope that you will have the rewards of the dunya and the akhirah, but you don't take the path of guidance, right? Like those people, unfortunately, uh, I mean, let, let alone the non-Muslims, clearly that's a different thing, but even amongst the Muslims, how much apathy, apathy there is now in terms of their religion and their obligations and so on, that we just hope, that we just think that perhaps it will be enough that we just said, uh, la ilaha illallah, and we don't need to do anything more. And clearly, those who say la ilaha illallah with sincerity will always enter into Jannah eventually. 
but that eventually part is the is the difficult part and that is the part that should scare us that, that we shouldn't take for granted that someone says oh i will go into jannah allah says whoever dies upon la ilaha illallah will enter into jannah it's okay with me i don't mind whatever i have to go through to get there that is something which is made a statement of such ignorance because that person doesn't understand and hasn't read the different narrations that speak about the fire that even a dip of the fire meaning a single smallest part of your body being dipped for a single moment into the fire is enough to make you forget any any comfort or joy that you have experienced in your life and that's a dip let alone a person who's in there right and stays in there and who knows for how long only Allah Azzawajal knows and that's something which would scare and terrify a person and that's why the scholars and the companions and those people who came before us they worked so hard to do good deeds and they made so much tawbah and istighfar and, and ask Allah Azzawajal for his forgiveness subhanahu wa ta'ala because it was an element that scared them so much otherwise why did Abu Bakr need to do so much and why Umar and Uthman and Ali and the other companions and the great scholars of Islam and the four imams and others why work so hard if everyone has that same thing of being able, because they understand, they studied, they learned, they read the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah, and they understood the gravity of that issue. And so, a person who wants to take that path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to tread the path of guidance. And that path of guidance is clearly the path that Allah has laid out and His Prophet has laid out. And if the two things converge, Ibn al-Qayyim says, if the two things converge together, you have the path with the intention and the sincerity that you want to attain Allah's reward and do it for that, then he says, that is the path of success, that is the path that takes you to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, because if one of them is missing, something isn't there, right? Something's not there. The path of guidance isn't there, or the intention or wanting to seek the correct result from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't there then that's where people fall into problems, right? Either you're going to fall into shirk because you haven't taken the path of guidance. You're falling into shirk and kufr, and we've seen and we know from amongst uh, you know, the Muslims across the world today how much shirk is prevalent, unfortunately, in so many different communities. And those people don't wake up and don't, they don't think that they're going to commit shirk. They don't do it intentionally in the sense that they think that it is shirk that they're committing, but they're still committing shirk. They're still committing acts of disbelief they're still associating partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in different ways, yes, out of ignorance and so on. And Allah azza wa will be their judge. And it's not our place to judge them or to pass judgment over them. But it is important to distinguish the action and to judge the action because it is a dangerous thing that may lead us away from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if a person doesn't tread the path of guidance, and the path of guidance, Ibn Qayyim ta'ala says, means those two things. Number one, that you have sincerity in your worship for Allah, meaning that you're that you're fulfilling your part of Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, worshipping Him alone. But it also has the second condition, which is following the path of the Prophet Because if you're not taking the path of guidance, either you're falling into acts of shirk and kufr, or you're falling into acts of innovation and uh, bid'ah. Right? You're falling into doing something which the Prophet didn't legislate, didn't bring into our religion. And both of those are problematic. Both of those are problematic and they are issues that a person needs to be aware of. And so Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala, he mentions this point which I think is a beautiful point and it is an extension to the position that he chooses in his tafsir of the verse Inna huda, that if you are ask, sincerely asking for Allah for guidance, he will guide you always to the path that brings you closer to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. He will always give you that guidance to Allah Azza wa and it shows the importance of sincerity. Even when seeking knowledge, when you're studying tafsir like we're doing now, or you, for example, you're going to study hadith, or you're going to study fiqh, whatever, the, one of the major intentions that should be in your heart is, oh Allah, I want to study and learn this because I want it to guide me to you. Otherwise, there are so many people giving knowledge and so many people giving information, and so many people sitting down saying that they're teaching Islam. But we also know that a lot of what's out there and much of what's out there and a lot of what's going on isn't actually bringing us closer to Allah, it's taking us further away from Allah. It's not actually based on firm knowledge, but it's based on different things, right? And people's desires and their confusions and their doubts and so on. And so it is a difficult and dangerous situation that you're in. But if your intention, right? Because part of it is an intention of your teacher and the one that you're studying with and the one that you're sitting with, but also a great part of it is your intention as well. Because maybe if the intention of your teacher is misguided 
or it's not sincere, whatever it may be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees the sincerity of your intention and Allah Azza wa diverts you away from one person and He leads you to another. He closes one door, He opens for you another. And that is something which, which we should understand because sometimes it is important that when we seek and study knowledge, we have that intention that, Oh Allah, I want this to be the knowledge that brings me closer to you. I want to have understanding of your religion. And when you look at the, at the, uh, the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah that speak about knowledge, you will often find that it is described as knowledge and understanding. Right? Because knowledge is not just about the information, it is about the understanding. And the understanding essentially means that you understand how to come closer to Allah is bringing you a light that is bringing you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you seek a knowledge that is correct, that is authentic, that is based upon the Quran and the Sunnah, that is done for the right uh, reasons and with the, with, with the sincere intention, you find a light within you and a contentment and a peace within you and your heart and in your decisions that you know that inshallah ta'ala it is the path of truth. And so that is the intention that you have as you seek knowledge and coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in everything that you do, that is the intention that you have, that you want to find the path of guidance that brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why this issue of hidayah and guidance is stressed so much in the Quran. It is sufficient that it is the verse and the dua that we make in Surah Al-Fatiha multiple times a day. Allah guide us to the straight path. But as the scholars mention also, that from the meanings of that verse, is that Allah keep us firm upon the straight path after you have initially guided us to it. Because a person may, a path may open up for them, that is the right path, but that person then strays from that right path. And for those of us that have been around long enough, may Allah keep us all strong and firm upon his religion and upon guidance. There have been so many of our brothers and sisters that we have seen, that we used to know from years ago that started with us and were upon our path and, and were, were students alongside us and some of them more senior than us. And then that person was, for whatever reason, that person strayed, that person made mistakes, that person left, that person. And I know people who studied with me, alongside me. Some of them were more senior than me in terms of they were ahead of me in years or in, in studies in the Islamic University of Medina. And today you find that person doesn't go to the masjid, doesn't pray, doesn't have any... You, if you were to see them, you wouldn't think that they were a person who studied Islam. You wouldn't think that that's a person who spent four, five, six years, can speak Arabic fluently, can read the Quran fluently, that studied with scholars across the world and so on. You wouldn't think that because Allah is the one who gives hidayah. And so it's not about who you are or where you studied or what you read or what qualifications you hold. It is something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone has. And that's something which in itself should make us humble and should make us afraid and should make us turn back to Allah making dua often. And when we're reading in our salah, it is something that should have, that meaning should be present in our minds as we're making that dua. And that is why when some of the wives of the Prophet وسلم, such as Maymun and others, عنهن, when they were asked what was the most common, and Umu Habiba, I think, when they were asked what was the most common dua that the Prophet وسلم, you heard him make, they said, Ya Muthabbit al-Qulub, Thabbit Qalbi ala deenik. Or the one who turns the hearts or makes the hearts firm, make your heart firm, make my heart firm, upon your religion. Make my heart firm upon your religion. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He guides us and keeps us strong upon guidance and that Allah guides our families and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides others as well. And so yes, it is something which we should be aware of but at the same time Allah has promised that the person who is sincere and, and sincere, sincere and seeks that guidance, Allah will guide them. Inna So that person who has strayed from that path, there was something wrong there either in their retention, if they were people who seek knowledge, they were seeking for the right reasons, they had other issues and so on. Allah Azza never misguided those people who are sincere in that path. And maybe, and we ask Allah Azza that He brings back to guidance those people who have lost their way as well. But it is something which we should be mindful of, and that is why the statement of Ibn Qayyim is something which is amazing, and it is something which we should remember. And Allah Azza knows best. And I think it is a good place, inshallah ta'ala, to stop here. Uh, because uh, the next couple of verses also will, will be lengthy. I have a question here. What is the difference between Hidayah and Tawfiq? So Hidayah is uh, is of two types as we mentioned. And Tawfiq is the second type, often mentioned as the second type. Tawfiq means that you're given the ability to do something by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Hidayah can mean guidance, right? And 
There is one which is Hidayatul Irshad, which is the Hidayah, which is the first step, which is the Hidayah of conveying the message of being aware of something, of being guided to something in the in the general sense of guidance, meaning when you guide someone to take a path, you say to someone, go there, take a right, take a left, and you get to your destination. That person then taking the path, that is Tawfiq. So there's a difference. Someone comes and asks you for directions, you tell them, do A, B, C, and D. right? But then that person actually following them, it's not necessarily that that person may accept that, that guidance, they may reject it, right? And obviously in the dunya terms and so on, it's a different issue. We're talking obviously here about the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to the path of, the path that, that leads to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. So tawfiq in this context would be those people who actually uh, and, uh, who, who actually accept that guidance. And, and generally in the sunnah you will find and in the Quran that the word that is used to describe both is hidayah. They are both called guidance because they are both types of guidance but in the scholars they called one hidayat al-irshad and the other one hidayat al-qabul and so on because to differentiate the meaning because it is important to make the differentiation otherwise people can get confused between the two types of guidance so we're concluding that there is two types of guidance two types of guidance right and it is just wordings that different names that are given to them may differ like in terms of terminology but in essence it is two types of guidance and Allah knows best Okay, so inshallah ta'ala, if there's not any any more questions, then inshallah we can conclude for today, bismillah ta'ala. Okay, so inshallah I don't think there's any more questions, so bismillah ta'ala we will conclude. I would also ask, by the way, uh, just sorry, just as a reminder for future lessons, there's always a delay between me speaking and what you guys are seeing because of obviously the way that we're, we're uh, broadcasting this. There's like a 10, 20 second delay. So sometimes I ask something and then I wait for like 10, 15, 20 seconds. Then by the time I, I think, okay, no one's got any questions and I carry on, you've just heard what I've said and by the time you type it in and so on, it just takes time. That lag is, is going to be there, right, for the rest of the year. So uh, this is a heads up and, you know, we should be aware of it. So if you have questions, for example, or you have comments, <clears throat> I mean, comments may be slightly more difficult. But in terms of questions, uh, you know, like especially for the lesson, if you have them ready and you just put them in towards the end of the lesson, that would be far easier. That would be far easier rather than, uh, you know, like me asking and then like, because I, I think I noticed in the last couple of lessons, people asked a question after I'd kind of concluded. Uh, that's that lag that's taking place so just be aware of that um, and that's why I'm not really asking many questions as well because by the time I ask the question and you guys hear it then you start typing in that that kind of like just uh, you know a kind of empty space which is just quiet time uh, is something which kind of drags on and so therefore I just move on but anyway um, Mahira is asking I'm a new student so I'm not sure about the methodology but I've noticed that we are leaning towards Imam Tabri's opinions generally is that a particular reason not necessarily that we lean towards Imam Tabari's uh, position generally, but he is obviously one of the greatest scholars of tafsir. And his tafsir is considered to be one of the greatest works of tafsir. And so anything that Imam Tabari says should be given its due regard. Not necessarily that it's always the correct position, but I always make a point because I think that it is, uh, as we're studying classical tafsir, and by classical, you know, the, the further back we can go in terms of the earlier scholars, the better. But also because I think it is one of the most underrated and unfortunately in our time, especially in the West, it is one of the ones that people have, have disregarded in the sense that, and I think I've, I've touched upon this before, but in the sense that because it's a book of narrations, people usually will go to even Kathir, it's an easier read, or Al-Qurtubi maybe, or Al-Shokani, the easier reads, and people don't really go to Tabari because it's just narrations. And in the midst of those narrations, Imam Tabari is also commentating. But his comments are in the midst of his narrations and so some people find that a difficult read or some people find it a difficult style and so on. And I think that that is a shame because people, scholars like Ibn Kathir and Shokani and others, Al-Qurtubi and others, benefited from At-Tabari. So if they're taking from At-Tabari, right, then, you know, like it's a shame that people no longer refer to that tafsir as much as I think that they should. So that's one of the reasons why I always try to emphasize especially At-Tabari. Uh, but not only that, like uh, there are other tafasir, Ibn Kathir, Shawkani, Baghawi, and many others that we also refer to, Ibn Qayyim, obviously, as we did today. Uh, it just depends. And so Ibn, uh, Imam Tabari often, what he will summarize in terms of methodology, in terms of these are the three or four opinions that exist concerning this verse, or the three or four comments that he found, 
he's narrating and Imam Tabari is like you know fourth century scholar so he's narrating from the scholars who came before him right and, and very often from the early scholars and he's doing it with his chains of narration and so it's something which is a good resource to find out what the early scholars said in terms of the tafsir of these verses right and remember what we said generally speaking that if you find the scholars of the sahaba and the tabi'een and their students they've all agreed on a certain type of tafsir then it's not right and correct that someone comes 10 14 centuries later and starts to invent another opinion and so it is a very good reference for that reason and allah Azzawajal knows best okay inshallah ta'ala we're going to conclude that jazakumullah khairan wa sallallahu alayhi wa muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh